listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is Delaney Stoner, and I'm the Families Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee, Florida, and our heart is to reach the city by loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We'd love to have you join us as we gather each Sunday at 9.15 and 11 a.m. If you would like to make a financial contribution, learn more about DCC, or contact us, please visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon, and thank you for being a part of our mission as we continue to spread the gospel to Tallahassee and beyond. This morning is going to be pretty fun because uh, we're going to talk about a subject that um, is, is prevalent, that we all know of in our culture. Uh, it's prevalent in our city. We especially know it's prevalent in our country. Um, what's interesting is the subject that we're going to talk about today uh, is a problem that we all know exists. It's just a problem that we don't have. Um, and what I mean by that is last week as we were going through, James gave this beautiful illustration. Essentially what he said was this. That the person who looks into God's word or looks into the scripture um, is like a mirror in that simply hearing or if you were to look at a mirror and say, oh, that's what I look like. And you wake up in the morning, you got all kinds of stuff going all kinds of places and you don't fix anything. But you think, "Okay, there was value in what I saw, even though I didn't do anything. No, you would still walk out on the streets. You still look like a weirdo. Um, Well, he says that's what a lot of us look like as Christians um, is you look into God's, you know, perfect law and you see all the things that need to be adjusted and fixed. And then just think that there's value in simply hearing. Don't be deceived. And what's interesting in that illustration is this. It assumes you see a problem. The problem this morning is we're going to talk about favoritism. Favoritism. And categorically, very few of us, when we hear that, think, you know what? I just have this deep struggle with favoritism. I just play favorites. I got a favorite kid, you know. I got a favorite restaurant. I got a favorite, you know, which that, that you should have a favorite restaurant, you know. But I, you know, at, at the office, I mean, I just, you know, I dismiss these people categorically and I just have this deep, ingrained, sinful problem towards favoritism. No. We all know that there are problems that exist in our country and in our world. Where there is favoritism that happens, there is preference that happens, and by favoritism what I mean is this, that you would show preference based on externals and association, that you would show preference towards someone or someones based on, based on externals and associations, um, and we all know that there's a problem, that now more than ever, our world, our country, our city, our culture is extremely divided based on externals and associations. Based on what you look like, what you talk like, what you act like, what you associate yourself with. And the more that we're different, the more that we disagree, the less I have a preference towards you. And the more I show favoritism against you. And and what's interesting, again, is, is, is we all know people like this. But none of us woke up this morning thinking, man, I've just been praying that I show favoritism. So let me, let me kind of give you a, an illustration, or not really an illustration, an example for myself that I know that I show favoritism. So that way it's going to be communally okay for us all to say, we show favoritism together. So I've got a good buddy um, who I've known for a long time. In fact, he's an, he's an elder at a church, um, not our church, but a church here in town. A wonderful guy. And some of you may know him. His name is Scott Simmons. Anybody know Scott Simmons in the room this morning? Raise your hand. Okay, we got like two people. Sweet. So nobody tell Scott that I said this, that I talked to him about it first. Um, 
So Scott, Scott is a guy I've known for a long time. He was, when I was in high school, he was, you know, about four or five years older than I. And he was a worship leader. And he was like the best worship leader in Tallahassee. I hadn't met William at that point, okay? So besides William, you know, our, our, our whole worship team as a whole. But he was, he, I mean, he was just this guy. And he, was, he seemed wise. And every time he played, it was like, man, like angels from heaven are singing. He had that perfect worship leader mix. Church folks, you know this. He had that pers- perfect worship leader mix of just being an extraordinary musician. But it wasn't like the Scott Simmons show, even though his band's name was the Scott Simmons band, but you know, pray for him. Um, but the thing was, is man, he was just, he had that, he had that mixture of musical ability. He had that mixture of presence. He had that mixture of humility. Um, he was the guy who he would play Chris Tomlin songs before I knew who Chris Tomlin was. Uh, for those of you who are, you know, church folk again, and you know who that is. And, and we would think that, you know, these, these famous Christian authors didn't write, we're like, oh yeah, Scott wrote that song. And then you find like three years later, he didn't. You're like, my, my childhood's a lie, you know? Um, what happened, what happened is, uh, is, is he was this dude, I mean, he, I, I looked up to him in so many different ways. Um, I, in fact, uh, got the opportunity to play with him. Some of you guys don't know this, and, and I almost would hop on just to illustrate this point, but, you know, you would be so mesmerized. I actually play the drums, okay? So, I've, hey, prayer request, pray that William gives me an opportunity. I just want one Sunday, okay? It's all I want. It's all I want. I won't preach that Sunday. Just let me, let me hop on. Anyway, um, I don't practice. That's the only problem. So, you know, oh, the spirit go. Um, it's a bad strategy. So nonetheless, um, got to play at some camps with him. Got to spend a good amount of time with him. And you know how it is. Like you have this person who you, I mean, you just look up to it a ton. And, and what's funny is, is a little bit later on, you know, and, and he would go to his, you know, stuff and I would go to my stuff and he's a wonderful guy, family man, engineer, um, wife, you know, lots of kids and, and just, just fantastic guy. I'll never forget, uh, a time when a buddy of mine, kind of, we were in a group chat, um, so shouts out to group chat that we all love, and he shot me this screenshot of his interaction with Scott on Twitter. In fact, I almost, you know, screenshotted it so you guys could see it. And it basically said, you know, did you know this? And it showed us a screenshot, and it was really simple, and all it was was Scott Simmons, Scott Simmons posted something about the Florida Gators, and it said, dude, I didn't know you were a gator. And, and he said, did you guys know this? And we're like, now this, this, if, if you're not from Tallahassee, you do not identify with this example. But I'm a Tallahassee folk, you get this. Like you find out that someone's a gator and it's like, oh, what happened? You know, what happened in your childhood? You know, like, like you're trying to like do some like psychoanalytic type stuff. And, and man, like you may have to pray for you, you know, that Satan would, you know, we rebuke the devil out, you know. Now, if you're a Florida person, then we love you, but, um. But still, like, there's this thing, like, man, I thought we lined up on everything. And, and what's, what's funny about that is we've all felt that in some type of a little way that you find out this little piece of information that has nothing to do with this person's character, nothing to do with their heart, nothing to do with their thoughts, per se. It has everything to do with their externals or their associations. And all of a sudden, something kind of sinks inside of you. What's fascinating is this is almost, it, it's almost so innate inside of us that we don't even recognize our hidden biases and our hidden preferences. But the problem is, is our hidden preferences eventually become our hidden prejudices. And what happens in the church is we don't take the time to mine for those, to see those, to become self-aware of them. We don't think that they exist. So let me just ask you a couple questions to see if maybe you identify with this as well as I do. If you were to look at the past five people you've gone to lunch with, 
Do they look like you? Do they act like you? Do they make similar to what you make? If you were to think about the last, you know, you know hipster, if the last five people you went to coffee with, okay? Do they look like you? Do they act like you? Do they talk like you? If you were to think about the last five people that you've invited over to your house for dinner, do they look like you? Do they act like you? Do they talk like you? And if the answer is yes, you aren't a bad person, but perhaps we deal with this a little bit more than what we think. What's fascinating is in the book of James, they dealt with this in some pretty overt and direct ways. They, as a church, the early church was going through beginnings of a lot of persecution. Persecution led, you know, kind of to an impoverished life. They didn't have much. They didn't, you know, make much because no one's going to buy from you if you, they hate you. And so as the early church would face a lot of poverty, James addresses an issue that is happening within the church and it has implications. It's just their specific issue, but it has implications to all kinds of things for us as Christians. So if you got your Bible, you can open up to James chapter 2, verse 1, as James hops in and tells us the principle first and then illustrates it after. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers... In our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that he says glorious Lord Jesus Christ is significant, but we're going to come back to that in a second, but just earmark that. He says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, the way that this is actually articulated in the original language is, is, is basically saying there can't be this coexistence of favoritism in Jesus because Jesus by nature does not show favoritism. So inside of the believers, it's not just that you shouldn't, It's that you shouldn't be able to show favoritism at the same time that you know Jesus. Now, that's kind of the general principle. Next, he illustrates how that played out in their context. Verse 2. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. And if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, this is interesting. Because again, most of us wouldn't think that we categorically do this, but, 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 but isn't this true? I want you to imagine that, you know, fresh off the loss in the NBA Finals, LeBron James is coming to DCC, you know, this morning, right? Which we would all be like, thank God, you know, and we would, I'm telling you, our church would be packed if this word got out, but all of a sudden LeBron's going to be here now. Now, just, just imagine this. Let's say that LeBron is like, you got your, you know, your, your lady sitting next to you or your guy sitting next to you or nobody's next to you, tear. You know, but you know, let's, say, let's say LeBron is sitting next to you, right? If this, if this is really happening. Wouldn't you be distracted? Like, I, like my heart would be beating. You know, I'd be like, man, what, like, what do I say? What do I do? Like, I feel like I need to ask for money just because you have so much, you know? Like, can you, I, don't know what, I don't know what I want you to pay for, but something, okay? Like, I mean, I want a 76 Bronco. Okay, LeBron, like, like, like here's this thing, right? And if, if we're raising money, it's like, hey, LeBron, you know, we just want to talk afterwards. We've got a building fund going on, you know? Like, like, what would it, seriously, I mean, or maybe your person, it's Oprah. You know, what would you do if Oprah was sitting right next to you? I don't know if that really has any, like, appeal anymore, but, but I, it should. Um, you know, wh- whoever your person is, you know, if it's, you know, you know, ladies, Channing Tatum, you know, sitting right here. And it's just like, oh, you know. And anyway, um, the point is, is there would be something inside of us 
that feels this sense of like association, desire, because we think that either they are like us or they can add value to me. And though we don't necessarily again think that we, and this is very difficult to see in the mirror, we all deal with this. I'll never forget a couple you know, seasons ago. Of the, I had some friends who worked at a place, and it was for an association, and they had, you know, um, Skybox at the football game, and we just kind of got lucky, and they invited us for one game, and then two games, and then three games, and then four games, and after about game three, you know, you start feeling elite. You kind of walk in, it's like, no, I'm not going to the, to, the, to, the, to the regular people line. I'm going to my special line, you know. It's real quick. I'm going to take my elevator up to the thing where everybody says, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, you know. You walk into your little, you know, doohickey, and you watch the game, and then after about game, and if you haven't had this, then I'll pray for you, um, but, you know, game three, game four, you start, you start walking out of the game, and you see other people, and <laughs> you're just thinking, peasants, you know, because you're just overlooking everybody, and you're, in the, I mean, come on, what is, the, seriously, what is that inside of us that just has this feeling that we have almost this innate sense to, like, to be better, to be more, and so what James says is, hey, hey, hey. You, if, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't do that. Now, our culture applauds this as a virtue. Their culture would have said, are you kidding me? You want me to do what? Because they were different and they liked it. They were different. The Jewish people liked that they were Jewish and they thought they were superior because they were Jewish. The Roman people liked that they were Roman and they thought they were superior because they were Roman. The Greek people thought that they were superior and they liked themselves because they thought they they were superior because they were Greek. Everybody thought they were better. Everybody wanted to associate with better because in their day, might made right. Might made right. The stronger you were, the more influential you were, the more power you had, it just made right. We live in a culture that interests has been so influenced by the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament that this is a virtue for us and it never was for them. And into that, Jesus says, I want you to imagine somebody walks in. I mean, they're just, you know, you're poor. Not just, not just poor. Because we can all think of people who have more than us. I'm talking to being abject poverty. And this dude rolls in. Gets out of his new Bugatti and rings everywhere. And you think, hey, I don't know if you've ever given before, but downtowncommunitychurch.com. He says, if you show them preferential treatment, you've become judges with evil thoughts because you're judging and you're associating and you're dismissing and you're showing favoritism based on your preferences, based on your personhood, and based on what value probably they can add to you. He continues and talks about a little bit more of the practical. He says, so listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? He says, come on, God in this verse is associating himself with the poor. He says, come on, this is who God has associated himself with throughout scripture. Now, Pause. What this, you can take this and think that God has this uh, inverted sense of preference where his point is don't have preference, but at the same time you look at it and say, well, he's saying that, you know, he would rather the poor, which isn't the case. God does not show favoritism. That is not in the character of God. But throughout the scripture, it is obvious and apparent that the poor have an easier time coming to God. You go to, if you've ever been around um, maybe a, a third world country, 
or been overseas to where there's this, this really acute sense of, of, of um, abject poverty. And people will go over and spend some time and think, we're going to bring the gospel and we're going to preach the good news. And then you go over there and you realize they already know the good news. And for some reason you walk away and you think, you know, and there, I don't know why, but they are so much happier there's so much joy, and they don't have anything. It's like, yeah, because you thought joy was brought by material. And the idea here is saying, come on. This, these are the people who God has consistently throughout Scripture moved in, moved through. Not the powerful, not the extraordinary the ordinary, the normal, the less than ordinary as culture would see. And God says, but they have so much value. You see, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that God has a preference toward us. This is not a poverty gospel. But the understanding is there are just so many obstacles the more that you have to give up everything to follow Jesus. Just more difficult. So he goes on, he says, let me just give you, again, some practical stuff that you, you know, preference in this, this, this rich dude that comes in. He says, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into the court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong? Verse 8, and so if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. In other words, if every time you walk into a place, you go and you think through the lens of how would I want somebody to treat me if I was at their position? How would I want somebody to treat me if I was in their position? Not what do I think, not what do I categorize, not what do I show preference to, but if I was in their position, how would I want somebody to treat me? If you do that, he says, you are keeping the royal law. Significance of royal law is this, that that is the summation of all of the laws in the Old Testament. That is a summation of all the laws of God that you would love your neighbor as yourself. Obviously, Jesus was talking to a guy one day. The guy came up to him and said, Jesus, you know, what's the, what's the, the most important law? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor. The second one is connected to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he takes an interesting little turn here. He says, verse 9. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles out just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, this is, it, it, it seems like, you know, James, where are you going with this? But we're going to tie this together in a second. Verse 11. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now, this is where, if you're in the Christian world, this is where we get the thought of, you know, people phrase it this way. All sin is equal in the eyes of God. All sin is equal in the eyes of God. It's not totally true. Somewhat. All sin is equal in condemnation, but all sin is not equal in evil. Because you stole a candy bar from your little sister when you were four does not mean you are Hitler, okay? But 
it does mean that we all innately have sin inside of us. It does mean that we all stand condemned by God. It does mean that we all have broken the laws of God. And God in his perfection looks at us and we are categorical. We are lawbreakers. Now, he's going to tie this into favoritism. But I think part of the reason that he's saying this is because at some point somebody had to say, yeah, but is that that big of a deal? I mean, come on, we're just trying to further the kingdom. We're just trying to do this rich guy. Perhaps he can give some stuff. Perhaps he can do some stuff. I mean, come on, is it really that big of a deal? He says, come on, if at any point you break the law, you are a lawbreaker. And he beautifully connects it in this next verse to what is the heart of it. Because what can happen is we hear a sermon or we hear a talk on preference, on prejudice, on favoritism. And we think, okay, I just need to not have preference, prejudice, and favoritism. But you can't really control that, right? Because it's almost innate. You almost don't recognize when you have it and when you do it. It's a heart change. So here's how he, here's how he weaves this idea of breaking the law and judgment into it. Verse 12. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, if you're relatively new to church, that's about the time where, um, shoot, even if you're not relatively new to church, that's about the time where you're like, oh man, I was tracking, I was tracking. What? Because he was just talking about favoritism now as mercy and judgment and, and, and all this. Here's what he's saying. You and I, all of us, at some point, are going to stand before God. You and I, we're all going to individually stand before God Almighty. And on that day, every one of us will need mercy. Every one of us will stand before a holy God, a glorious God, like he said in verse 1. And none of us will stand before God saying, I am perfect. You see, from time to time, there will be folks that say, you know, something along the lines of, you know, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. It's like, that's the problem. He will. And that should terrify us. And let me tell you, if you're worried about my judgment, wait till you meet God, okay? Because I'm, I'm not that good. He is perfect. He is holy. He is glorious. And all of us will stand before God as sinful, broken human beings. And some of us with some sin, some of, some of us with a lot of sin, some of us with some evil implications to our sin, some of us with a lot of evil implications to our sin. But every single one of us, none of us will stand before God in not need mercy on the day of judgment. And each one of us innately does not have things that we can offer to God that God said, you know what, I am going to forgive you, I am going to give my son for you, because, let me tell you, without you, I am just so incomplete as a deity. No. He chose us, he gave his son for us, he loved us while we were still sinners, while we were not adding value to him, not because there was a value transaction, but simply because of his love and his grace for us that is without any type of preference or prejudice or favoritism. And so how can, if I am going to stand before God, holy God, and on that day know that I am sinful, know that he is holy, And know that he sent his son into the world to die for me. That it would 
cover me. Because, right, I mean, he's God. He is a just judge. There had to be some type of a payment. He didn't just say, oh, I forgot. He, there had to be some type of a payment in God in a fair and just way and world and system. And he sent the punishment on Jesus to show me mercy. To show us mercy. And how in the world can I look at anybody else and look down on anybody else because everybody else is a sinful sinner, broken person in need of mercy before the judgment seat of God. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what you act like. I don't care how you dress. I don't care what you make. I don't care. I don't care what your riches, what your race. I don't care what your socioeconomic. I don't care what your category, categorical. I don't care what your political. I don't care. I mean, I, I don't care because God didn't care to me. And if as far as this goes, it's just when someone walks into our doors then it falls short of the, of, the, of the understanding of the implications of what Paul's saying, or what James is saying. He's saying, come on, as, as Christians, we're going to stand before God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In the same way that you're going to need mercy, everybody else is going to need mercy. And yeah, they might be cool, they might be neat, they might be interesting, but so what? If you find your fulfillment in God, if you find your value in God, you find your worth, and you find mercy from God. Um, Isaiah has a really fun way to put this. In uh, Isaiah chapter 40, he says it this way. He says, um, he, being God, sits enthroned above the circles of the earth, and the people are like grasshoppers. It's one of my favorite verses. He sits enthroned above the circles of the earth, and the people are like grasshoppers. I love that imagery. Because the truth is, none of us, I mean, imagine this. Like, imagine two grasshoppers, right? And God. Glorious God. Can you imagine that if God shows up, one grasshopper would look at the other grasshopper and be like, man, I really want to hang out with that grasshopper because that grasshopper can like jump really high, you know? Like, have you seen that grasshoppers, the way that they can jump and their receding hairline, but whatever, you know? But have you seen how many like little bugs that they have stored away? I mean, they just have so many bugs, God, you know? And man, they just have this, this entire wealth and they'll never have to worry and they can jump so high and they look so cool. And man, what a cool looking grasshopper. That's the most stylish grasshopper in all of grasshopper land, you know? And they take the most incredible grasshopper selfies. Like, God... Have you seen this grasshopper? Oh, that other grasshopper? No, I don't really like that grasshopper. Exactly, you know, the grasshopper, it's kind of socially awkward. You know, it's kind of a weirdo grasshopper. You know, no, we would look and say, oh, like, like, we are all grasshoppers. There would be no, there would be no comparative. There would be no better than that when God looks at us, he doesn't see, man, that person is so incredible. That person is so, no, because God does not look at the external. He does not look at the association. He looks at us and he looks at the heart. And he knows that we are all broken sinful. Let me tell you this. When we see as God sees, we'll do as God says. When we see as God sees, we'll do as God says. And the problem with favoritism, preference, and prejudice is not a, let me fix this and act different. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel and the glory of God. There is no way, there is no way 
that I can look down on you or you can look down on me or we can look down on anybody. When I see how glorious God is, like you might be a little bit more polished than I am. I might be a little more polished than you are. But at the end of the day, I can't, I cannot, I cannot think I'm better than you because none of us is close to God. That's why I think he starts this whole, whole thing, if you track back with me for one second. Beginning, he says this in, in, in verse 1. He says, my brothers and sisters, believe, believers, in our glorious Lord. When you see God as glorious, when you see God in his glory, if we were to see him on, you know, if, if he was going to show up, if he was going to show up today, like God showed up, right? And you've got LeBron sitting next to you. Oprah, Channing, you know, whoever. And we hear that God is going to be here. God who, if he was, if we, if he was going to show us a little bit of his glory, to the point where if we ever saw his glory, we would die, but somehow, like, we're able to see it. None of us would be like, God, LeBron's here, you know? We wouldn't even know, probably, that anybody else was in the room because the glory of God would fill the place. The problem is, the problem is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Because if God would so love me in my sin, if God would so love me in my brokenness, and God who is so glorious would see me and love me, there's no chance that I can in any way, shape, or form show favoritism, preference, prejudice, in fact, the older you are, you probably know this. The older you are, you probably have the opportunity to sit down with some people who are extraordinary wealth, who have extraordinary wealth. Not necessarily the person who, like, they have a nice house. They have, like, a nice helicopter, you know? And then you sat down with somebody who doesn't. Who doesn't have much. Maybe it wasn't even in this country. Maybe you said it was somewhere else. And you sat down and looked across the table and had a translator. Or you sat down at a table and just had a conversation. And your takeaway wasn't, oh, they were so impressive. Oh, they were so, you just walked away and said, you know what? As I think about that, they were people just like me and just like you. When we see as God sees, we'll do as God says. And so here's my prayer. Here's the takeaway. Here's what's okay. Knowing of this, here's what you do. All I want us to do, all I want us to do is to be open to God. All I want us to do is to say, God, Will you help me to understand this truth better? God, would you change my heart? God, would you help me to understand how deeply sinful I am and how extraordinarily glorious you are? And would you allow that to so infiltrate my heart that it changes me? Because God, I know that there is not a person on planet earth who you did not send your son to die for. And so I'm going to treat everybody like that. Me and by saying this, we live in a very divided world. What if 30 years from now, we looked back and the change, the unifying agent that happened was the church? What if we look back 30 years from now and our culture was more unified, our country was more unified, but it wasn't. 
As a bunch of people decided to get together and say, you know, we're just going to be all, you know, friends and, and, and neighbors. What if the gospel so infiltrated the believer's life that our city was different because we saw intrinsic value based on the fact that you are made in the image and the person of God, not because of your, you know, of, of your beliefs, not because of your affiliations, not because of your net worth, not because of your ethnicity, that you are valuable, not because of your gender or your gender association, that you intrinsically as a person made in the image and the person of God have value and I found you valuable regardless of anything else. What if you were like that every single day in your workplace? What if we were like that every single day? as a church? What if folks who were far from God came to church? Because the other side of this is perhaps, again, you came from a place where you were far from God. This is your first time at church or your first time in a long time. And what kept you away from the church was you walked in and because you didn't look the part, act the part, dress the part, and seem like you were the type of person, everybody judged you. What if you walked in and you thought, wow, I don't believe a darn bit of what they believe. But boy, did I feel like they valued me? Perhaps it would change the way you thought about God, you thought about church. Perhaps for the first time in a long time, you would be open to Jesus. So here's my prayer, that we would simply allow God to invade our hearts with this reality of our brokenness, our sinfulness, and his holiness and his glory. And that would drastically change that there would not be, could not be, favoritism, preference, and prejudice in the heart and the life of anybody who calls himself a Christian. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we know that we will all stand before you someday. We will all fall. We will all fall crazy short of your glory, of perfection. Because we all have broken the law. God, we all, we, even if we don't even necessarily ascribe to your law, whatever law we ascribe to, we have broken that. And if you are perfect and if you are holy, which we believe you are, we fall so short and we will need mercy and we will need your forgiveness. I thank you for providing that to the person in the work of Jesus. Because none of us can earn our way into your good graces. We're just simply not that good. But God, you gave your son for us. And God, I pray that we will see the world as you see the world. As you sit enthroned and as you look on these people who truthfully, as much as we like to project ourselves as these incredible people, compared to you, God, we are like grasshoppers. God, I pray that the fact that you would send your son to die for a rebellious group of grasshoppers like us would so deeply change us, there would be no way that we deeply believe in that and can have any sense of favoritism, preference, or prejudice. I pray that you would make us one. You would make our city one. You would make our world one as you individually invade our hearts and change us first. I pray people that are, have come to church for the first time in a long time or perhaps see a group of people that actually value them. Not because of what they do, not because of what they can add, but simply because they are your sons and daughters. They are made in the image of you, God. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.